Hey, this is Dory Clark. I just got done talking with Ryan from the World of Speakers. We had an awesome conversation about how to transition from unpaid to paid speaking, how to build up your business, ways to improve, and all the good stuff. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the World of Speakers podcast brought to you by Speaker Hub. In each episode, we interview a professional speaker and reveal their very best tips and tricks. You'll learn to improve your presentation skills, keep your audience engaged, and learn how to grow your business to get more gigs and make more money. Here's your host, Ryan Folland. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode where we interview speakers from around the world. And today we have Dory Clark, the author of a few books, but her most recent book is The Entrepreneurial You. And today she's going to share how she has used the stage to create this small empire, helping entrepreneurs become more entrepreneurial and people reinventing themselves to become reinvented. All that good stuff. Dory, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, let's just jump right into it and start by jumping backwards. Where did this all begin? I mean, you definitely are an authority in the space of branding and reinventing and finding that true entrepreneurial spirit. But were you destined to find this path? And how did it come about? (laughs) I'm not sure if I was destined. If I was, it took me a while to discover my destiny. (laughs) (laughs) I actually started writing and, and speaking about all these things because I essentially was kind of a, I was foiled in my early attempts at finding a professional career. I started as a newspaper reporter, and then I was laid off. And then I went to work in politics as a, as a spokesperson on uh, multiple campaigns, governor's race, presidential race, we always lost. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it was, uh, finally, I, I ended up as a nonprofit executive director And after about a year of doing that work, I had this realization, this sort of sudden realization, which kind of took me too long to to get to, but it was, oh, wait a minute, running a nonprofit is exactly like running a business. And then, you know, pause a beat, I could run my own business (laughs) And uh, ever since then. Well, so as a kid, were you were you outspoken? Were you on the front of the stage? Were you in the back? What were you like as a kid? Were you typically shy, introverted, outroverted? What would you call yourself? You know, I did always like speaking. And, uh, you know, a lot of people don't think that that is compatible with being an introvert, which I also am. They, of course, just can conflate you know, public speaking with needing to be an extrovert. But I feel like they're really sort of different things. I would much rather be on stage at a large conference than be in the middle of the pack of people at the cocktail reception at the large conference. That part feels stressful to me in a way that being on stage does not. So you are an introvert who is comfortable being on stage and being on stage gives you almost more security than being lost in the crowds. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it just, it makes relating to people a lot easier, right? Because People will come up to you as a result of your talk, and they'll already know what they want to talk to you about. They'll they'll be like, oh, I liked your talk. You know, when you said blah, 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 I had a similar experience or, you know, whatever it is. And the conversation is just very easy because they already have a lot of context about you. Whereas if you are kind of a random person in the audience, all the weight is on you. You have to find the commonalities. You have to sort of do that awkward scraping where you're like, so where are you from? <laughs> you know, just looking for something. So it, it is actually, it greases the conversation. If you are a speaker, it is very helpful for my kind of social anxiety as an introvert. 
I like this idea of scraping, right? We typically talk about networking, but at the end of the day, it is scraping for information to find the common ground in which you can carry on conversation. Yeah. <laughs> and from the stage, you are starting the conversation with a one-to-many, and then that leads to probably many one-to-ones. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well put. So uh, let's talk about how you develop this topic. I mean, it sounds like, you know, I just know because I've heard you on podcasts and I've seen you out there speaking. It, it seems to be on the personal branding, reinventing, and now sort of into this entrepreneurial realm. How did that fabric seem to stitch itself? Was it as a direct result of the experiences you were going through and reinventing yourself? How did you lock down that, you know, your core messaging? Yeah, one of the misconceptions I think that a lot of people have about coming up with your big idea, and this is something that I talk about a lot in my book, Stand Out, is that the cultural narrative around that is always, okay, you need to just like kind of go away and think and then come up with your big idea and then you go out and speak about it. And the truth is, I in writing Stand Out, I interviewed you know 50 plus top thought leaders across a wide variety of fields. And precious few of them, almost nobody, actually came up with their breakthrough idea that made them famous through doing that. Instead, what is far more common is that you start out, I mean, you don't start out with nothing, right? You start out with something that is sort of vague. You start out with an interest. You start out with, oh, you know, I like, I really like graphic design or, oh, you know, Facebook advertising seems kind of cool. I want to learn more about that, you know, whatever it is. But it's not like you have a hypothesis. It's not like you have, you know, a definitive point you want to make. You just have something that you want to learn about. And so you keep going more and more in that direction. And it is through the process of doing that, just kind of one foot in front of the other, that you begin over time to formulate your point of view and then be able to speak about that articulately. And that was certainly the case for me. There is no way that I could have. I just felt dispositionally incapable of coming up with with like one unified thing that I wanted to talk about. I was pulled in a lot of directions. I had a lot of interests. And so instead, I essentially experimented. I, you know, quote unquote, placed a little bet by blogging. That was kind of my way of doing it. So I wrote about a lot of topics. And then personal branding ultimately came to be the one that, took off the most and seemed to have the most interest. And so as a result, I ended up doubling down on that. Well, I'd like to double down on your word, disper, what was it you said, see, dispositionally incapable. Ha ha ha, yes. That's a great, hashtag that, whether I can spell it or not. But I think that this point of discovering what your big idea is, or even in a little bit more general, this topic or theme in which you want to be known for that's really the root of developing a personal brand. And I know that that's been a crux of, of your content is helping people within that realm. How important is your own identity as a, as a speaker integrated with this idea of a personal brand? How intertwined are those when people are coming up and figuring out what this big idea is? Well, I think, I think they're connected in a lot of ways. I mean, they don't, they don't need to be the same thing. Right. I mean, if you are somebody with a disability, it's pretty limiting if everybody's like, so you could speak about having a disability. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, at a certain point, it's just like, oh, come on. You know, however, that being said, if you, you know, just to take a random example, if you are a person with a disability, it's not that helpful 
if you totally ignore that, you know, because of course people are going to be like, you know, oh, well, if it's something they notice, they, they're like, wow, you know, I wonder, I wonder how that affected his life or, you know, oh, I'm, you know, just curious how that like fits in. Like, you know, it's a piece that people are probably going to be interested in and there probably is some real meat behind that. So I would say that when it comes to your identity as a person, you know, whatever that is, whether that's about, you know, you were an IBM lifer for 30 years or whether that's that you're, you know, an African-American woman in technology or whether that's that, you know, you you are an introvert who became a successful comedian, you know, like whatever is the thing. It's something that is a really interesting and useful starting point as a place is a place to think about what is your personal brand? What are you passionate about? What do you stand for? But also we need to realize that we shouldn't let it limit us. I think that sometimes the external world might look at whatever those characteristics are and assume like that's your thing period. And it's our job to remember it's a good starting point, but it doesn't have to be all of your thing unless you want it to be. I like that as a starting point because whenever there's really hard and fast rules that people are sharing, I think it makes people maybe feel limited as to what their options are. But this idea of who you are as a person as a starting point, but not limiting what you want to be known for or what you will end up speaking about. Totally. So question for you when it comes to this idea of going from thought process and evaluating what you're interested in and honing in on that. And then, for example, a lot of people start with blogging, which you did. How does that transition happen from writing to speaking? And how was that transition for you? How did you go from blogging to then actually taking the stage? So I think that an important difference to just draw out here is unpaid versus paid speaking. Okay. And I started speaking in many cases, before I, I was blogging, because it was, of course, a great way to promote my consulting business. And it was something that I enjoyed doing, but nobody in the world would have paid me for it. <laughs> right. So unpaid speaking can be a great way to just get better, you know, to improve your skills. It can be a good way to do business development. But if you're going to be a paid speaker, assuming you are not a celebrity for other reasons, odds are the way that you are going to quote unquote prove to conference organizers or, you know, whoever is booking the speaker that you deserve money for your speaking is that you need to raise your brand profile enough through content creation of some form. A book is especially helpful here, although it doesn't have to be the only way. And that will show them that you have the the requisite gravitas to be a paid keynote speaker. Requisite gravitas. Hashtag requisite gravitas. These are great. I can tell that I'm talking with someone who knows her vocabulary words, and it's fascinating. Thank <laughs> you. I am I am glad that you are just coining the hashtags left and right. I say go for it. Now, are you pretty active on Twitter? I am. I am. I do have a pretty active Twitter account. If folks want to engage, I am at Dory Clark. It's D-O-R-I-E-C-L-A-R-K. All right. So you heard that, people. Hit up Dory on Twitter and loop me in the conversation and find a way to use requisite gravitas (laughs) or dispositionally incomparable or incapable or something like that. And (laughs) anything close, just throw a hashtag with it. Loop us in the conversation. But I think that sounds fun. So I love the fact that 
you are an introvert who is now onto the stage. And I would assume during that process, there was a lot of learning, whether it's from mentors or whether it's from, you know, self-help speaking books to organizations. Let's dive into maybe, you know, some of the places that you found resources, and then we're going to put you on the spot, throw you under the love bus because it doesn't hurt. And we're going to ask you to come up with a number of real high value tips for our listeners on how they can improve their skills as a speaker. So where did you find your information and how did you, how do you continuously look for the best practices when it comes to speaking? Well, you know, when I was getting started doing speaking, I've never taken a specific speaking class, but um, something that, that actually was very helpful for me, there are probably two things. One was doing improv in college. I am a, a real big believer in the value of comedy. I I mean, you know, comedians just, they have to work so much harder than regular business speakers. I mean, I've started doing stand-up comedy in the last uh, 18 months or so. And what I've come to realize is that being a business speaker, I mean, it's not easy necessarily, but like the bar is kind of lower, right? Like it's it's (laughs) like, they want you to be interesting and not boring. Right. You know, that's like, that's about it. If they could be like, oh, I learned something and she was pretty good. Like, yay, win. Victory. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, for stand-up comedy, if they are not literally laughing aloud every 10 seconds, they're like, you fucking suck. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's a great distinction. And there's nothing, I don't think people understand how far the rabbit hole goes when it comes to comedy. Like you are being psychologically manipulated as an audience member. And that takes a lot of talent to do so. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. So comedy is one area that I think is really useful. The other is actually teaching. So for a number of years, I taught university classes. I mean, I I still teach. I do uh, part-time work for the Fuqua School of Business at Duke with these executive ed programs uh, a couple times a year. But So that's intensive in short bursts. But for a number of years, I was teaching once a week, you know, every you know, say Monday night or whatever it was. And it was long. It was like six to nine, usually. One place I taught, Emerson College, actually ridiculous. They made the classes be four hours long. It was 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. It was killer. And I just did this every single week for years. And it was painful. But the good news is that you really become acutely aware of how the audience, meaning your students, are responding, you know, when their attention is wandering, when they're engaged, how to snap them back if you need to, etc. So that was a, a really good um, force for me to improve. What I like about both those examples, they're very audience centric, at least the way that you describe the learning experience is that really, how are you either more aware of your audience or whether it's a consciousness of how they're taking the words in certain rhythm to make it come, you know, more of a comic situation to a classroom where this idea of like, you got to know when to snap them back. So I I heard in there, a lot of that experience is based on you having a very, a big concern for the audience. How big is the audience play when it comes to speaking? Do you think people underestimate the value of really paying that close hyperattention to the audience? You know, I, I think I think so in the sense that so much of what is written or talked about with speaking is about, you know, it's about you as the performer. It's, you know, 
okay, well, what, you know, what are you saying? What do your slides look like? You know, what's the text essentially? And then, you know, you have the sort of platform skills discussion about, oh, well, you know, are you watching where your hands are and are you swaying? And, you know, how are you modulating your voice? All these things are really important, of course, but, but it almost is presupposing that you're operating in a vacuum. Like that would all be good if you were like on a soundstage and you were just <laughs> right. filming it, but you know, you're, and you know, like asterisk, right? If you're doing a TEDx talk, for instance, you kind of do care a little bit more about <laughs> the camera in some ways. I mean, you want it to be a great experience for the people in the room, but the thing that's going to live on and be seen a bunch of times is the video of it. But in the vast majority of cases, you know, really, really your concern is the members of the audience. And no matter how polished you are or whatever you're doing, it just matters a lot less if your audience is not connecting. You know, you, you could be doing the most evocative soliloquy in the world, but if, if they're rolling their eyes and they're bored, then, you know, you've lost. And ladies and gentlemen, next time you were doing an evocative soliloquy, Hashtag that hit up Dory and myself. We'd love to see how you do that. (laughs) Okay, so here's the challenge for you. I'm looking at the book titles that you have. You know, you've got Reinventing You, Stand Out, and then Entrepreneurial You. Let's pretend that your next book is going to be called Speak Up. And it's your insights on the best pieces of advice you can give to people, all things considered, into a format that helps them become better speakers. So tell me about what that book would look like and what are some of the golden juicy nuggets that are that are leaking out of the pages. Amazing. All right. So if we're trying to help people become better public speakers, some of the things that I think are, are really useful, and I'll, I'll just kind of jump jump all around the, the board here about stuff, but these these are the things that are coming to my mind that I think are the most helpful. Number one, I think that one of the most important things actually is being able to speak loudly, to project your voice. Now, Mm. obviously, you know, if you're speaking in front of large crowds, they're going to mic you, okay? But the truth is, you're not going to start out speaking to large crowds. You're going to start out speaking to like 10 people at the Chamber of Commerce, you know? That's the progression. And in order to be able to get to the point where you're allowed to speak to the large crowds and have the microphone and, and everything, you need to get through the hurdle of what it's like to speak successfully in small groups. And if you are somebody, and you know, this isn't the case for most people, but there is a real subset of people that just, they don't know how to project their voice. I mean, I, I hold a lot of dinner parties and, you know, there'll be a, like kind of a noisy restaurant, 10, eight or 10 people at the table. And inevitably there's going to be one person there that, you know, they're like, hi, you know, I'm, I'm blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and we're like, hey, can you speak up? And they'll be like, hi. I'm blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, like no. And, and they're like, I'm sorry, I can't. <laughs> it's like, what, what are you doing? You know? And so I think that if that is you and you want to be a speaker, you need to learn how to speak up. And specifically what I mean by that, you should take singing lessons and learn about diaphragm breathing so that you can project better. I think that that is really important. Not, I mean, for everything, even just like, if you're at a meeting at work, you know, people cannot take your ideas seriously if they can't even hear your ideas. So that's a little hobby horse, but I think it's an important one. Another one, I just want to go back to something we were talking about earlier about content creation. It is never too early to start on content creation because you, in order to get the really plum assignments for speaking, paid assignments, you need people to want you. You need people 
to ask you and to seek you out. You are never going to get a $20,000 keynote by sending a cold email pitch to someone and saying, hey, I'm a speaker. Do you want to hire me? Never. They are only giving the expensive keynotes to people that they have heard of and that they have vetted themselves. And in order to be the person that they're thinking of, you have to make yourself findable. And you do that through your breadcrumb trail of content creation. So I think that that is uh, really essential as well. I like that. The, that Again, I'm just thinking of like Hansel and Gretel as little content creators dropping their little tweets and their Instagram posts along in the forest on their way to try to find some sweets. I like it. <laughs> Thank you. That's That's what I'm going for. Exactly. You are not going to get eaten by nasty wolves or whatever if you've been live tweeting your location. Everybody knows that. If you think about it, tweets are kind of like breadcrumbs that could get lost, right? So it's about having enough breadcrumbs, but continuously putting them out there because I find sometimes people think that a certain post or I'm going to tweet, well, it is a breadcrumb. If you leave it overnight or 18 minutes later, it's sort of lost in the, in the bush. So this idea of significant breadcrumbs so that people can find you in a consistent dropping of these different technological breadcrumbs. Yes, totally. That's your next book. It's called Breadcrumbs, just so you know. <laughs> uh, good, good. That makes it easier. Thanks. Actually, that, I, I like that. You know, dropping breadcrumbs in the digital age. I can see that. Ah, this, this idea is fleshing out. I like it. <laughs> okay, so back to your, your next book, which is Speak Up. So I like this. You cannot, your idea falls flat if no one hears you, which is which is very obvious, but important. And I think sometimes my favorite pieces of advice are the ones that are so blatantly obvious that most people are passing over because they don't think that it's as important because it's just obvious, but those are sometimes the most important. Yeah, totally. So speak up. And then this idea of the digital breadcrumbs to create content sooner than you even think that you could. What else for people that are, that are getting going? Let's say that you've got the content creation started you sort of have honed in this larger message. You're comfortable at the dinner parties with your volume. What about some of the things that you've learned when you're actually on stage? Like, how do you how do you start? Do you have any any good advice for the intros? Usually, things are made or broken very quickly. Yeah, absolutely. You want to make sure you are grabbing people pretty well. I think that you know certainly I'm I'm a big fan of picture based slides, meaning. I try to never have more than like three words on a slide, period. So like big picture and then a few words. Basically, in my speeches, I tell a lot of stories. You know, all my books, including the latest one, Entrepreneurial You, I have interviewed, you know, 50 plus people. And I kind of create this pastiche of their stories in order to create a, a narrative. And so I will typically just put together a PowerPoint that's essentially just their pictures. And uh, I will then use that as kind of a cue card for myself, where I then just click through and, and tell their story and how it applies to the overall theme. But I, I think it's nice for the audience because, you know, it's, it's always cool to visualize the person as you're hearing about them. So I think that that's one thing. Another thing that I like to do early on is to just kind of have a little reality setting thing. You know, I talk, I, I like to start my talks generally by meeting the audience where they are, you know, talking about, I mean, in my case for a talk about personal branding, I'll talk a little bit about just, you know, how frenzied people are, you know, how they're pulled in so many 
directions and it, it's become more and more stressful even just to, to keep up with the basics. And that might seem like it doesn't have any, anything to do with personal branding. But the point that I make is that if you're that busy, everyone else is that busy. And that means essentially that your personal brand, meaning like, who are you? What are you capable of? What should be your next career assignment? That is the last goddamn thing they care about. <laughs> and so <laughs> if you are going to actually get people to care about that, you really have to, you can't just be assuming like, oh, they'll get it. Like you have to take very specific strategic action in order for that to happen. And I think once I present that context, then people are like, oh, right. Yeah, that makes sense. So starting out with a kind of context setting, I think is helpful. And you said literally setting the stage. It has kind of a dual meaning in it that you're actually setting everyone up in order for them to have this frame of context to then get the most impact. And I like what you said about this consciousness of whether or not they will care. And that comes back down to this audience-centric idea. But if you're not focused on your audience caring about you, then you'll just end up being one of those speakers who is just speaking to hear the the sound of their own voice. And as a business speaker goes, that's definitely going to be a fail at the end of the day. Totally, yeah. So let's talk about how – so we have sort of – I can see the speak up being a lot of simple tips when it comes to speaking, everything from volume to whatnot – Then you've got this sort of content creation trail early, but also at the same time when you're actually on stage and starting using images and visuals to help people visualize what's happening and setting that stage. Do you have any structure from the content and the way that you put things together from the main body? Is there a a method you use? You know, I think that in terms of structuring my talks, there's kind of two main ways that I do it. And I'll say that pretty much no two talks that I give are ever exactly the same. I have a lot of what I call modules, you know, sort of particular stories that I like to tell, and I will fit them together in different configurations based on the audience and based on what the needs are that the organizer has expressed, you know, what they would most like their attendees to get out of the presentation. So I'll often mix and match themes from my book, Stand Out, Reinventing You and and Entrepreneurial You, as needed. But typically, I will either kind of break it up into thirds so that, you know, there's kind of three main sections kind of walking people through a concept. I feel like thirds is sort of useful and memorable for people. Or I will just make a list, essentially. And so a a prime example of this is I had an engagement that I did for Deloitte a couple years ago, where they brought me in to speak multiple times over the course of the year for some of their auditors. And it was this big training session that they did for them on a lot of audit subjects. But one of the elements of this kind of workshop, you know, this conference that they put people through was that they had this networking reception one evening where they really wanted people from the different offices to get to meet each other and connect, etc. And they wanted me to be the speaker right before that. And so they appropriately, they were like, hey, could you do something about networking? You know, we sort of want people to be in that headspace right before the reception. And I said, how about this? How about a talk called eight ways to become a better networker in the next 30 minutes. And they were like, (laughs) yeah. So basically I did this very quick 30 minute talk where I gave a series of eight kind of news you can use tips that, you know, literally were things about how to be a better networker 
in a cocktail party so that they could employ those techniques like the minute afterwards when they entered into the reception. Gotcha. So literally, again, back to this audience focus, but finding out what the goals are of the organizer and crafting it exactly to that. I also like the the whole threes because you know how many little pigs there were? I'm thinking three. How many little blind mice? Also three. Yeah, there's uh, also three bears and there's three throughout the history of time. And I, I love that. I mean, my numerology number is three. So I'm just I'm destined to be obsessed with the number three. But I think that's a great strategy to break people down into something that they can remember. And when you're giving them information that they need to know for their current lives at the right time, giving them news that they can use is maybe your sixth book title. Yeah, I like there it. There we go. <laughs> so. I want to transition into how you would help somebody monetize their message. And it could be sharing, you know, how you have grown to a spot from free speaking to a spot that it's become paid or how you help people leverage their message on stage as part of their brand development. You know, you have an inside view because you're really helping individuals craft their own brand story and brand message. How do you help people incorporate stage time and speaking and sharing the message that is something that they can monetize into the whole scheme of things? Yes. So when it comes to transitioning into paid speaking, I realized in the course of doing my research for Entrepreneurial U and also thinking back to my own experience that there's really a clear progression that everybody goes through. And so in Entrepreneurial U, I actually called this Clark's Law of Professional Speaking. Nice. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. (laughs) And it goes like this. So step one is no one is interested in hearing you speak, period. (laughs) Um, Step number two is they are glad to have you speak for free, Step three is they are glad to have you speak and they might even give you a small honorarium, you know, a little bit of money. And finally, step four is where you become a coveted enough speaker that they are actually willing to pay you a real and legitimate fee. And everybody pretty much has to walk, you know, has to work through those steps. You know, there's, there's generally not, unless there's some extenuating circumstance where, you know, you become overnight famous, you're pretty much going to have to go through each of these stages and recognize how they come. So early on, pretty much everybody has to do a lot of free speaking. I mean, it's unfortunate and annoying, but it is how you train yourself. And it is that process of quote unquote, getting your name out there, etc. The key is making sure that you are not exploited in the course of doing that, which means getting strategic about ways that you can extract value in different ways from it. So that value might be, you know, just that you're practicing, that can help sometimes. It might be getting testimonial quotes, which is very useful to a new speaker. It could be that you ask if they will videotape it, or, you know, if they're already videotaping it, if you can have a copy, and then that would give you, you know, sample footage for a speaker reel, that can be very useful. Maybe they won't pay you, but they'll pay expenses and it's somewhere nice that you want to go. That could be a reason. But so just getting your value out of the experience when you're still speaking for free. And then, you know, slowly understanding when is the moment to raise your rates and getting comfortable doing it. 
I love number one, to be honest, which is nobody cares about what you're what you're talking about, right? <laughs> yes. And sometimes I think that's the biggest barrier because, you know, how do you find someone else to pay you for the value that you feel like you're providing when it's maybe not directly correlated with the value that they see? And this is aside from your lack of experience and the, the tactical ability of you on stage. How do you get past that number one? Like, how do you break through to getting people to care? And is the answer just speaking for free enough until you have that traction? Yeah, you know, I, I think that part of the challenge is making sure that you understand what the goals of the organizer really are. And they may be slightly different than what you imagine them to be. So, for instance, it seems wildly unjust that a person who is getting paid to speak be in paid a lot, they might be like a celebrity, but they're actually a terrible speaker, right? <laughs> right. Yes. And you look you look at that and you're like, oh my God, that's ridiculous. I am such a better speaker than this person. You know, it's like so unfair, blah, blah, blah. And I mean, it is, right? It's terrible. But there's a reason for that. And the reason is that if it is a, a kind of open enrollment event, you know, quote unquote, if it's something where people are buying tickets, they need to have a celebrity headliner because even though most of the value of the, of people attending the conference in reality is going to come not at all from who they hear speak, but who they meet at the conference, you know, like the networking or whatever people register for conferences because like, Oh, that seems like such a cool speaker. I want to go. And so they know that paying such and such celebrity $35,000 to speak is a good investment because it'll sell $100,000 worth of tickets. So in order for you to get to the point where you are a highly paid keynote speaker, you need to make yourself as famous as that person. So yes, it's important to improve your platform skills and, and how you speak, but it's really important to improve your fame and your visibility. So understanding where you need to move the dial to make yourself more desirable is really important. Now, meanwhile, there's other, you know, there's other things to think about too. I mean, if you are a, you know, a breakout session speaker or something like that, for those, it often is a specific informational goal that people will have, you know, for whatever conference, like, let's say, you know, there's a leadership conference and okay, there's breakout sessions. This is the place where if the keynoter is this kind of celebrity, that's just like, oh, well, what they bring to the table is they're famous. They're usually for most conferences, learning goals, right? Because if a company is paying to send people to attend the boss who may or not may not be going wants to make sure if he's signing off on something that his people will get a good education, quote unquote, from the experience. And so it is part of the mandate of the conference organizer to be like, okay, educational experience, got it, right? So it's, it's often the breakout speakers. So what's a good way to get yourself hired as a breakout speaker? Again, it's great, it's important, it's necessary to be good as a speaker, but it's especially important for you to think about how you can establish your expertise in a particular niche so that they're able to look at you and be like, oh, clearly this woman knows a ton about Bitcoin. She's been published in such and such and such and such and such and such. We're going to just make her a speaker on our Bitcoin track. So credibility 
really pays a, a big dividend here as well. And it sounds like this whole getting famous concept is at the end of the day, an investment into clarifying, recognizing and creating content around what you want to be known for, which is really your brand, right? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I, I actually teach an online course called Recognized Expert, where I really help people think through these processes, you know, of how to, uh, how to build that. And what I have come to realize in the course of teaching the course and, you know, in the course of interviewing, you know, literally hundreds of top thought leaders over the past decade is that fundamentally when it comes to becoming a recognized expert, which is basically the, you know, the kind of person that can command the fame that you're looking for, yeah. that, you're, that you're referencing. Yeah. Yeah. They can command the big fees. It's three things, right? You need all three really to be fully effective. And that is content creation so that people know what your ideas are, social proof, meaning your credibility, so that people understand through your credentials that you are someone that should be taken seriously and listened to. And number three, your network, because you need people on your side to be recommending you for things like, let's say, speaking engagements. Hmm. Gotcha. So again, look at that number three popping up in our lives, very simple steps, but this known as an expert is a certain amount of fame that's going to help you bring in the money because they'll see the value as a result of the network that either you bring or the network that's supporting and validating you, as well as the social proof. And I would assume you're referring to, if I were to Google someone, what happens, correct? Yeah, absolutely. That's certainly a, a piece of it. It's, you know, the term social proof, it's, it comes from psychology and it's, it's basically just, uh, you know, what, what is it that would make somebody listen to you? You know, have you, it's, it's a signaling question more than anything. And so the way that I like to think about it is what are brands that people have already heard of that you can associate yourself with? Because it makes it that much easier for them to say, oh, okay, he's credible. I'll pay attention now. So being featured in a Forbes or Entrepreneur or Huffington Post or Inc. or something like that, you basically have someone else that's saying, I spent my time and effort in interviewing, spending time with this person. Here is where they're seen as a thought leader. And so someone is the classically as seen in, and it lifts that visibility or that social proof of someone else trusting based on that essential recommendation by being featured, right? Yeah, that's that's exactly it. If you look at most people's websites, for instance, I mean, you can you can see that they're doing this consciously or subconsciously. You know, oh, this person, they've been on MSNBC and CNN. They've been featured in the New York Times. Oh, look, they've consulted for Apple and LinkedIn and Morgan Stanley. Oh, look, they wrote a book and Adam Grant endorsed it. You know, whatever. Yeah. It's all these things that just like, Oh, okay. If these people think that this person's good enough, then clearly I should. You're just you're saving the cognitive effort of the reader. Yeah, you're really kind of tapping into the mental mind maps that they already have, and you're sort of sneaking uh, a nice halo effect or drafting alongside them. Yes, that's right. Okay, well. I think we've got enough for a couple books here. Uh, any, <laughs> <laughs> any kind of final thoughts? Like if you were someone who was listening to this podcast and you're at that middle stage, you've been speaking for free, you've been working on your brand, you haven't been getting those big paid gigs yet. Maybe people have covered expenses. Maybe you have some 
amount of inbound leads, but at the same time, you're at this this transition, you're trying to hit that tipping point. What would you tell that person or how would you encourage them to keep pushing, to push beyond, like to get to that tipping point? Is there anything that you could share with them as either inspiration or tactical to help them through that? Well, there's, if you want to get business, there's really only two ways to do it, period. You know, I, I'm not a fan of cold calling. You know, I mean, it, it can work, caveat, right? I, in my book, Entrepreneurial You, I, I profile, you know, I, I profile a guy named Grant Baldwin, who really did manage to build up a good business, a successful business through cold calling for speeches. But the caveat there is that he said that his hit rate was about one in a hundred, meaning out of a hundred contacts, some of which he emailed once, some of which he contacted many times, would turn into an actual paid engagement. If speaking is the one thing you want to do in the world and you have all the time in the world to do it, then, you know, good, great, do it. (laughs) But for most people, for most professionals, that's just not a good use of your time. You know, you have other things that you can do that would be paying you a lot more money than spending incomparable hours trying to scare up one gig. The two things that are, that are much easier in terms of their efficacy is number one, uh, there's the short term and the long term, right? So the long term, as we've talked about, is creating content and trying to publish it in the highest profile venues possible. So if we're talking about blogging, it would be, you know, a well-known publication, let's say a Forbes or something like that. You could do it, you know, with, with video or audio or whatever, but it's creating content consistently and for high profile venues. That is what is over the long term going to attract people to you. What you can do in the short term, however, is highly targeted follow up on warm leads. So meaning you can pick certain conferences that you think would really be a fit for your message and then just research very meticulously. LinkedIn is going to be very helpful here. Who you know who has spoken there before to see if they could recommend you. Possibly people that you might know who are on the the board. You know, let's say it's an association, right? Maybe it's somebody who's who's on the board. Maybe it's somebody who's on the speaker committee. Maybe you're interested in speaking at the national convention, but you know somebody who runs the Las Vegas chapter. I mean, you know, whatever it is. But it's reaching out to those people in a very targeted manner and saying, hey, there's this very specific conference I'm interested in speaking. Would you recommend me? Would you put me in touch with this key person? And if you can do that, that is a way of kind of jumping the line in terms of your credibility. And that could be helpful. Nice. Well, I like that we've got simple long-term and short-term goals. Ladies and gentlemen, we're talking with Dory Clark. And if you want to check her out, doryclark.com. And I'm appreciative of the fact that you are so audience-centric. You are the introvert who prefers and is more comfortable on stage, which I think is amazing. (laughs) Your new book that is out is The Entrepreneurial You, but the newest book after that is going to be Speak Up, and then the newest book after that is going to be Dropping Digital Crumbs in the Digital Age or something. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I appreciate the... The real, really, at the end of the day, the foundational kind of tips that you're talking about, because I really believe a successful speaker isn't necessarily doing what no one else can do. It's that they're doing what everybody else can do, but nobody does. And that could be leveraging your network, creating laser targeted focus to find and get warm connections and really building up that social proof, just one and two blogs at a time. And I think that there's no better time to start that than now. So thank you, Dory. 
I enjoy your content. This was fun. And I, I'm excited to continue to cyberstalk all the fun stuff you have going on. I love it, Ryan. Thank you so much for, <laughs> for having me. It's great to talk with, with you about speaking, which is one of my favorite topics. And I'll actually just mention briefly for your audience that if they're interested yeah. in this question of becoming a recognized expert and trying to figure out where where they're strong in that and where they're a little bit weaker and could use some effort, I actually created an evaluation. It's a, a very detailed, scored self-evaluation, which I think is pretty cool that, that gives you a score and a rank based on these three areas about content creation, social proof, and your network. And if anyone would like to download that for free, they can get it at doryclark.com slash toolkit, T-O-O-L-K-I-T. Wow, very cool. I'm going to go check that out and self-assess, let you know how it goes. And then I look forward to seeing you online and hopefully on the stage sometime. Thanks so much, Ryan. Good talking with you. All right. Thanks, Dory. Thanks, Dory.